This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And today we mark the return. It's been a long absence, a, a whole week, a whole episode we've been without True Crime TV Club. I now know. now it's back today. But what science was so weird last week that maybe it's, <laughs> it's really, a, a, it's, it seemed longer. I was exhausted after that last episode. Waiting through that bullshit was like, give me a real murder and some investigators with some solid background and experience who actually analyze evidence in in a reasonable and mature way. Yeah. (laughs) Eric, you always go right to the, the real stuff. The real stuff. So... Yes, and we did pick this episode, and again, this is the usual disclaimer, True Crime TV Club is designed so that you don't have to have seen the episode that we're about to discuss, but if you would like to, we recommend that you pause the podcast so that you're not listening to a podcast while you're watching something on television, because that sounds weird and crazy. But it's your house, do whatever you want to. The episode in question is uh, Season 1, Episode 3 of American Nightmare. The episode title is Paradise Lost. And Eric, there was not a little Not John bit Milton. It has nothing to do with John Milton, but you did have a reason for suggesting this episode. Yeah, we're coming up on or right around the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, and we looked at some Hurricane Katrina um possible mysteries but it was a little too close to home i like if i talk about that storm too much i start crying because it upsets me so much the um just the horror of it and the mishandling of it and all of that was so tragic so we decided just to sort of look at it more broadly as um it's hurricane season you know it's summer storm mm-hmm. season and we found uh, one that was it, that in the write-up of talked about a storm hitting key largo very much like the storm in the movie Key Largo. Well, I don't know if the storms were similar, but a storm hits uh, Key Largo in the movie Key Largo too, doesn't it? I'm pretty sure. Anyway. I have never seen Key Largo, I am ashamed to admit. I think that's the one where put your lips together and whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you? I think that's the one that that's from. Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. even where they met, where Bogey and Bacall actually met and fell in love and, you know, ended up getting married and stuff. Anyway, so basically it's hurricane season. It's almost the anniversary of Katrina. We can't bring ourselves to really talk about Katrina because we're both Louisiana boys and it hits a little too close to it's home. It's just a little too not. It, 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 that's not really entertainment. 
And I will say the case that is covered here did not have any, well, there is weather involved. It didn't have any of the same trigger points, if you will. It didn't end up being too close to the In bone the anyway end, for the, me at least. The description of the show was a little misleading because it seemed like the storm was, they kind of led with the storm. So it seemed like the storm was going to play a bigger part in the story than it actually ended up playing. Absolutely. But, um, you know. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So those were did ours. you did you know going into this what the focus of how they were going to put the episode together was? That one caught me back. I didn't realize from the title "American Nightmare" that this was going to take the direction that it did. Well, I don't know that you, exactly what you mean by that. I thought you were going to. I thought you were meaning one thing, but I'm not sure what the question is. I didn't realize it was going to be so focused on crime scene video. That oh, really seemed oh, to be. Yeah, that seems to be this series. I haven't watched any of the other episode, but yeah, there was, I think, no reenactments at all or very limited uh, reenactments because there was a, yeah, no, there were a couple of people I can remember. being Voiceless but, reenactments. Yes. Yeah, but most of it was um, the repetitious use of, home video and police video and video that they had of in and around the crime scene. It seemed to be from the timing of it that it was sort of like at the advent of the possibility of having a video recorder because it was the early 90s, wasn't it? 1991 is when this crime so took you place. Could have yes. a, it was possible to have a video recorder at the time and so there's a lot of video recordings that they sort of cobbled together to... Uh, create it begins with the wedding video absolutely it begins with the wedding of mike and um, missy mcavore it is an outdoor wedding it is clearly the 90s you can tell from the hair choices and the fashion what was their name mcavore as opposed to mciver was it Mac? It was spelled. It was spelled in an unexpected way. I do the show notes, and I was. It was spelled M little A C capital I V O R. How would you say that? MacGyver. MacGyver. Okay, I I like Macavore better, but I'll call them the. They could be the. They could be the Macavores. It's fine with me, but I thought they were. I thought it was Mike MacGyver and his wife. What was her name? Missy. Missy, Missy MacGyver. Yes. Or uh, Macavore. Most of what we're going to know about them comes by way of their of Mike's siblings, Mike's brother Timothy, and Mike's sister, Doctor Sharon McAvoy de Maria. And I got to say, the, they were some unusual people. I liked them just fine. I didn't have anything. I don't have a negative word to say about them. But they were really their own people. I was like. These are some unusual relatives. The brother was very, I would guess, maybe gay, but very emotional, yes. very light, uh, you know, a little headed towards um, that direction, but maybe not gay, maybe just, you know, a little lighter. Whereas the sister had this voice like whatever and really like super heavy eyeliner and his doctor so-and-so and very, they were, they were very unusual people, I thought. Yeah, and they're it in terms of the family, in terms of what we're going to be. And I don't think any of Missy's family is involved in this special Not at a all. Word. We're just hearing from Mike's family. Okay. So we're, we're watching this lovely wedding ceremony. We're hearing wonderful things about this absolutely gorgeous couple. I mean, they were just photo really, ready in like, all respects. I, absolutely. Like magazine married couple. Like if you were going to do an, an ad for wedding wear, this would have been the couple to pick. They were lovely. Beautiful people. And then, 
we cut abruptly and immediately from this wedding to actual crime scene video. I think we even cut to a disclaimer saying we're about to see a lot of crime scene video and it's going to be and disturbing. Of the weirdest house that you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, and we should front load this. This crime took place in what's called an Aero subdivision or something. It's in a, it's in a town called Tavernier, Florida. Which they don't tell you right up front. Right, and so it looks like a very it's a very strange two level house with no interior stairway. Um, the the you have to go to an exterior stairway to get to the second floor. And the reason the houses are sort of strange like this is because they are literally on an airstrip, and you can pull up your little Cessna directly to the house. And it's called the Tavernero subdivision, and A is capitalized. Okay, so dispatch gets a call. It's a signal. And just five. as a side note, apparently aviation was sort of a big part of their life. It's his job. He's a plane. He's a he's a plane broker or something mm-hmm. like that. And his father was a pilot, and his mother was an air, air attendant. And in her sixties, got her pilot's license. Their whole family is very, very much um, involved. The MacGyver's side of the family is very much involved in. Um, flying and the aeronautics industry. It's very important to them. So hence that may be why they chose to live in this really weird house. Yes. And so the call goes out to the police dispatch. It's a signal five. It's a homicide. This brings first responders, a CSI team and a detective named Mark Andrews from the Monroe County Sheriff's office to the house Uh there are we are treated to very slow crime scene video, which looks like an initial entry into the home. There are drop cloths down throughout the house, indicating that some sort of renovations are underway in parts of the room. Um, the exterior set of stairs that I mentioned earlier is the only way to get to the house's upper level. We go up there and that is where they find a male corpse. I mean, and the bodies are blurred out, but it's like the bodies are on the floor in the house. So this is crime scene video. It was like, hence the disclaimer. It was like, okay, wow. Like, you can't tell it's, there's, I mean, there's a vague notion of the shape of it being a body, but it it is blurred. But it is, I believe, the first time in True Crime TV Club history that Mm -hmm. the actual corpse has in any way been represented in... Um, the footage or the other than, you know, like a reenactment of somebody lying on the floor. But it also is intercut with with silent reenactments of someone pretending to be the corpse so that they can show you specifically the details of, I hate to put it this way, what has been done to the corpse. Now, the corpse has, you obviously think I mean mutilation, and I don't. I mean a pair of white athletic socks have been placed over the male's eyes, and his eyes and mouth have been wrapped in masking tape. So they show that with an actor, Which but then they weird. cut back to the blurred then body as you just described body. it. Yes, it's really, so that's, that doesn't happen, thank God. There's a small spot of blood on the man's left shoulder, and there's what appears to be a footprint on his throat. Quite a detail. Yes. On the kitchen floor, they find a metal bar that's about a half inch to three quarters inch in diameter and two to three feet long. They're not sure if it's the murder weapon, but it could be possibly... There's some evidence of ransacking. There are papers strewn on the floor. They move down the hall to the master bedroom, and that is where they find a female corpse lying on the bed. I think she was lying on the bed itself, right? Or was I thought she, on she the was floor right too? at the foot of the bed. 
Yeah. She has been hogtied with belts and clothesline. As with the male corpse, there are, well, actually, there are not athletic socks on her face. There are pieces of tape over her eyes as well. She has been badly beaten and gagged. The restraints include a variety of things, a belt, neckties, and rope. All of this came about because the police were asked to conduct a welfare check, which was requested by a colleague of Missy MacGyver. She was a teacher. She was a teacher. She didn't show up for work. Um, They confirmed that the corpses are indeed Mike and Missy MacGyver. There is visual evidence to suggest that Missy has been sexually assaulted. In addition, dresser drawers have been pulled open. An address book is open on the bed to the letter G. Several pages have been torn out. I loved that detail. That was like, wow, that's going to be in a book I write one day. That was like to, to tear out, to destroy the records of the letter G. But, you know, everything about this was so analog. Like, it was so 1991 because, like, there's a written address book. It's not in the cloud. You can tear out the pages. We also discovered that the phone lines were cut, that the phone junction box was cut. So this is an era before cell phones. Outside the house, they discovered... I still have phone lines connected to my house, and I have a cell phone. So there's... If you were... And you would... But... Cutting a junction box is not a surefire way to murder somebody in their home and eliminate their only way of communication. You have a cell phone that you could call 911 but it would, on now. But it would disable their uh, the connection of their um, alarm system. That's correct. That's correct. Outside the house, there is a ladder going to the second level. There's a boot print discovered But also in the a giant metal staircase, so I don't know why you'd need a ladder, but... Because since they both arrive at pretty much the same point, I thought they focused on that, but I thought that was an odd detail because the staircase is on the exterior. Well, and I think part of why they focused on it is because it was the next thing the videographer focused in on. Everything we're describing is being shown to you really methodically in the crime scene. Very much real time. Kind of like on The Closer with Buzz, where Buzz comes Mm -hmm. in and does the whole crime scene with them and they lead him through the house and show them different things and you get to see it at the same time. They discover that, as we saw earlier from the drop cloths, that work was being done on the house. There was a handyman who had access. He knew about the ladder. The ladder was his. The question then becomes, does the boot print they discovered belong to the handyman? There's been some bad weather. We talked about that earlier, so it's not the best boot print, but they managed to make some kind of cast of it. I assume it's a plaster cast. We don't go into much detail about what that, how that process unfolded. And even one of the detectives said, sort of offhandedly, I'm not even sure if that worked out. I'm not. Right. He was not sure if they even got a good... Uh, boot print, which was sort of a little giveaway, spoiler alert, that maybe the boot print wasn't going to play a very significant role in the overall conviction. Correct. They live on a cul-de-sac, so chances are good, they think, that the neighbors could have seen somebody approaching, but what they discover is that it rained incredibly hard the night before, and this was an interesting tidbit I didn't know, that rainstorms usually don't linger in the upper keys of Florida. They typically pass through. But that night they had been socked in by rain in a way that they were not usually. 
I don't remember them saying fact. it was a hurricane, though. I think the description no, says it's a hurricane. It was really more like a storm. Like, it didn't seem like a hurricane at all. Like, it blew through in just the night, and there wasn't, like, big disruption. Although, there did seem to be enough disruption that there were, um, that the travel back and forth to the mainland would have been impeded. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. And then we reach a terrible twist. Oh, God. The reason the drop cloths were down in various rooms is because they were doing refurbishments in part to make a nursery because they were expecting... A child, Missy, was pregnant and due soon. And so there are actually three victims in the house and not two. She was due in just a couple of weeks, in fact. I didn't realize it was, she was that far along. Yes, she was that far along. I, I believe the legal hideous. term that is used is a viable baby, which is a yeah, they did say distressing that. way to talk about it. Yeah. Questioning the family does not turn up any leads. They question the family. Who do they know? Who maybe had a grudge against them? What were they into? All the usual questions. Um, what? Go well, ahead. But then they get. Then the dentist from Miami showed up. Watch it. Watch your dentist in the future. I was like the dentist. That's correct. The dentist. Because Missy's dentist was continuing to also treat Missy's ex-husband. And so the dentist saw the news of the crime on television and called in and said, by the way, I, uh, her ex-husband is a patient of mine and he was not okay with the divorce. Very upset that she had remarried and very upset that she was about to have a child with her handsome new husband. So, yeah, that's be careful. The ex-husband was a babe, too. It was like, wow. okay, Yeah. Hello, (laughs) ex-husband. Right. They are able to get a DNA sample, presumably from the killer, off of Missy's body, and they send it to the state lab. This was a time, 1991, when DNA was just coming into the law enforcement world. This is pre-O.J. Simpson case, for those of you who use that as a benchmark in the history of modern true crime investigation and trials. DNA was not as sophisticated as it is now, or the analysis of it at least, and it took a long time to get the results. Yeah, it was very slow. So they turn their focus onto the address book and they discover that not only was the G page missing, the H and I pages were all turn out, torn out as well. Right. You, so know, you, have, you made a fa- I thought you had something to say about that. You no, made a big face on your This is my end. favorite Sorry. part. The, the, the address book is my favorite element in the, in the investigation. I just find that to be such an interesting detail. So the sheriff's department looks into family contacts that had last names that start with G, H, 
or I, and they focus on the handyman. Remember him, the one who left the ladder leaning against the entrance to the second floor. His name happens to be Leon Harvey. Harvey, in case you aren't awake or sober, starts with an H. Because we're not pronouncing it Hervé. Hervé. Mechavor. He is a local. He mostly worked in the house when Michael was at home working. It sounds like as an airplane broker, Michael worked mostly out of his house. So he would know when they were coming and going. But the handyman is very cooperative. He surrenders his shoes so they can compare it to the boot print. He also gives them something to take a DNA sample from. I can't remember what exactly it was. They're always doing saliva in the cop they're, shows. They're like, they all gave, like, he and the ex-husband both gave, um, were very cooperative. They were like, yes, of course, you can have a DNA sample. Um, it didn't re- yield immediate results because it was much slower at that time, but both of them gave DNA samples. I assumed cheek swab, but who knows what they took back then. Maybe it was a blood sample. Yeah, who knows? I'm, who knows what they needed? Um, right. Because it's not. And, and, anyway, so they find another person whose name could have appeared on the ripped pages. That's a neighbor, James Haraway. He's also very cooperative, also gives them everything that they need. Gene, uh, the ex-husband, has already cooperated. We covered that. Um, they are, Gene uh, has an alibi with checks out, which checks out. He was in Miami at the time of the murder, spending time with friends. So, right, so the um, ex is off the, off the list, and we never get it. to see him again, which is a shame. Yeah. Uh, so eight months into the investigation, detectives decide to shift their focus and discover and explore, excuse me, whether or not Mike was actually the target. Mike, as we already talked about, loved <laughs> aviation. His parents both worked for Eastern Airlines. The family grew up working on aircraft engines. They were living in this aero subdivision, as we already described. You could literally land a plane in their front yard, and it was in Florida, and it was the early 90s, and the dots are all there to be connected with the Colombian Mm -hmm. drug trade, um, flying in cocaine into the south of Florida on your private airstrip. So there was... Possibly, they thought that there might have been, he might have, though he seemed to be a respectable businessman, that there might have been an overlap between him and possible shadier figures. And what do you know? You look and you shall find. A tipster with connection to some South Florida drug dealers happens to tell the police that he has information about the murder of Mike. I'm, I'm not going to say their name wrong every time I get Mike's murder. And that he says that Mike was involved in trying to buy an airplane down in Belize that had been seized as part of a drug smuggling operation. And he was getting involved with some bad people, specifically two Colombian drug dealers named Miguel and Jose Santos. So they explore this tip. And long story short, the tipster is completely full of bullshit. But it's he was bullshit. Trying, He's trying to get a yeah. deal. So he came and made I was up sitting forward. I was thinking, oh, this is it. Like the 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 the. the Peels are coming off, right? This is going to be the real story. Right. No, it was, yeah. Years also, ago. Also, their last name begins with an S, so it wouldn't have been in the address book in those three areas of of, uh, of pages that were torn out of the um, the address book on the bed. Absolutely, and uh, they 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 find nothing. They find they the drug angle goes nowhere. They even I think they even go to Belize it, to investigate. It, it wasn't even clear that the Santos even existed. Yeah, they were like the Kaiser Souza of this story. So okay, <laughs> yes. Years go by, 
And so now the detectives decide to shift their focus back to Missy being the target. Now, this is where I got a little bent out of shape. Yeah, because, me too. Okay, do you want you go there first? Because I've been I've been doing a lot of talking. What What was your reaction to what came next? Well, I was like, it took the sister years to yes. remember this. Like the yes. the sister, the doctor, um, Mike's sister, um, who I liked, but who seems really like she might be on the the housewives of Key Largo, um, with mm-hmm. her big basso voice and uh, long blonde bleach hair and big personality. Um, and big eye makeup, suddenly mm. remembers that, oh, uh, the same day as the murder, that's the way it seemed to me, I talked mm-hmm. with Missy on the telephone, and she told me that she was being sexually harassed by the guy at the uh, the gas station where she went to get, I don't know, gas, or uh, maybe it was the Quickie Mart or whatever. Um, but it was probably nothing, but he just gave me the creeps. Uh, I'll call you tomorrow. It was and worse than was, that. It was worse than that. He was com- he was coming onto her really hard, and she had to say like, "I'm pregnant. Like, what are you like?" She, I am. Really, yeah, I'm a married yeah. woman. I'm pregnant. Leave me alone. Yeah, like yeah. she shut him down. But it, yeah, it was like, and it because even she had said herself, days passed and weeks and months and even years. The sister, and then and then suddenly they were like, so we were racking our brains, and it suddenly occurred to me that she had called me the day before the day she was murdered and told me this story. And I was like, you're, you're kidding. And so now is when you mention it. It's like, do you work for the French police? Okay. And, and, and now I'm going to do the next one because there were two in a row because then the detectives were like, Oh, that guy over at the gas station is Thomas Overton. He's our local burglar. (laughs) I was like, what? We knew about him because he had a burglary conviction in Pensacola before he moved to this area. So we were keeping an eye on him, but he's just a burglar. So we never Even really looked into the him. The break seriously. in matches his MO. And they had they say they have no physical evidence to connect him to the MacGyver. So that suggests to me that there was maybe some investigation of Overton that was done at the time, but it was cursory and he didn't he didn't ring any alarm bells, but still they and this was like the gas station. This is where people took their boats, yes. maybe their planes and their cars. Like, it's not like there were a lot of choices. This was a very, this was the gas station where they all went, both the brother and the sister said. And so it was, it was really a strange detail that there was a delay in investigating him. I was like, really? This seems really kind of like, anyway, it, it was an odd delay. Indeed. Two two odd delays, I think. So they put Thomas Overton under surveillance and he doesn't do anything that gives them a chance to arrest them. But then an informant lets them know that Overton, excuse me, is planning a burglary in the upper keys. So the police lie in wait for him. And when he goes to initiate the burglary at the property in question, they arrest him. They take him into custody. He's He's cutting the phone lines because that's his M.O., before he breaks into the house, they bust him, show up in the bushes with flashlights and haul his ass into jail because, duh. And he refuses to provide DNA. Yes, the first one in the whole thing. And then the biggest bullshit story I have ever heard. Well, maybe not oh, wait, ever. Okay, go, wait, go on in. I don't go. What's, what do you think is the bullshit story? It. 
do you have more about his arrest or are we going straight to well he's the arrested. acquisition of the dna yeah, he's he's arrested, and apparently he asked for a razor. Is this the bullshit story? Yes, this is the bullshit story. So the police tell us that he's not on suicide watch, so of course we give him a safety razor with which... I don't know what the hell happened. Suddenly there's this, he's all cut up to ribbons and there's blood everywhere. So there's a copious amount for DNA samples, but it was like coerced DNA sampling. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, I'm not really buying in. You gave him a razor because he asked for one because it was, it seemed a little, and then he bled all over everything. And I I just thought that was like, Huh. The reason they give is they think he was trying to get transferred to the medical unit. <laughs> yeah, which I also was, I found it to be a dubious part of the story. It seemed like there was coercion involved in the acquisition of the um, of the DNA. That's as far as okay. I'm going to go with but it. But it does, it does step on one of the better moments that's going to come, that's going to come in a little bit. The, the one-liner, you will, if they were to ever do a TV movie about this case. Um. The investigators then interrogate him and they claim that they're just going to show him photos of different crimes that happened in the community to see if he has any information, if he can inform on anybody else. They're going right. to show him burglary photos, all that sort of stuff. They show him a photo of the, of the MacGyver's house and he says, I've never been to that house. I've never seen it. They show him Mike's picture and he says, yeah, I, I, I've never seen that guy. I don't, I don't know who he is. They show him Missy's picture and he says, uh... She looks familiar, but she, I'm not sure from where. But what he doesn't know is that his DNA matches the sample that they've taken from Missy's corpse from the house. So and they, basic- they don't know that the, Mike's brother has gone into the gas station that they all go to, and the guy has said to him on looking at his ID, oh, you look just like your brother. Right. But in this moment, they've set him up because they were questioning him about past burglaries. And so by his own admission, he has said, I was never in that house for for any other reason. So if they find a sample of his DNA from the house, it means he was there once. It was to commit a murder and he's lying about it. He's not going to ever be able to use the cover story now. Oh, I robbed that house three weeks ago, and that's why my DNA was there, and she must have touched something with my DNA on it. That's over. She accident. She got the that semen I left in her bedroom. She somehow got that on her vagina, and yeah. So I'm <laughs> like, I think he was kind of sunk anyway. So he he gets onto them and he says, "I'm done talking," and that's when they reveal that this DNA matches. And what the detective allegedly said to him in that moment was, you cut your own throat. Yes. So if if they didn't um, coerce him, it makes that one-liner not exactly pop with the same amount of zing. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. 
At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So, being told that his DNA is a match from the house, having been essentially backed into admitting uh, that he had never had any other reason for being there and never set foot inside the house for any other reason, even to rob the place, he decides that it is time for him to end the interview. <laughs> he decided, Overton decides he no longer wants to cooperate with this interrogation. Right, he's suddenly like, and I will tell you, he was a textbook case. People who end up with coerced confessions and um, saying things that they don't need to say could take a lesson from Mr. Overton. When he is done talking to these people, he, there, he is not equivocating. He just keeps saying... Uh, he's, I think he's just an experienced criminal, but nonetheless, he just keeps saying, I'm done talking to you. I have nothing mm-hmm. else. I'm done talking to you. He does not go on the record or have any other reaction to anything, even though they have cornered him into denying that he knows people who they have evidence that he would recognize, um, denying that he's ever been to the house or seen the house, even though his DNA was in the house. And uh, in many ways, incriminating himself. I still, how do you, I'm not sure why you think that that one liner would be more of a pop if you, if he did cut his own throat. Uh, because if I was writing the story, that's it, that's more of a, a turning point moment. Like you think you're going to cut your throat. It, if he was coerced into doing it or, what do you think happened? Like what's your, what's your conspiracy there? You think they actually said, here, have this razor, don't cut your own throat with it, wink, wink? I don't think there was a razor. Okay, well, say what you think happened. Okay, so let's just say somebody accidentally punches him in the face as hard as they can, and there's blood everywhere, and they get some on a razor they happen to have and add it into the collection of rags and stuff that they use to soak up the blood that's from accidentally punching him in the face as hard as they want to. And then what do you know? They have samples of his DNA. I mean, he may well have been malingering and trying to wind up in the, uh, in the sick ward with, um, with cutting himself with a razor. But I would think having a terrible stomach ache or something would be a much easier way to go with something like that than cutting your throat with a razor. I just thought that was really an odd bit of detail and the way in which they reported it, like including the detail of, well, he wasn't on suicide watch. So we had no reason not to give him. And when they showed it, it looked like, you know, a single edged razor blade that you could use to scrape um, putty off of a window pane or something. I, I just was like, the, the whole thing was like, I'm not fully convinced about the the veracity of this razor story the guy did it his dna matched so it was sort of like a moot point it wasn't like they were framing an innocent man but the but narratively the of his daa dna um seems to have happened maybe a little ex parte but narratively the line you cut your own throat has more power and more punch to it if he really did stupidly cut his own throat thinking he would go to the medical ward absolutely that's what i meant 
Absolutely. Okay, I get it. I thought you meant the other way it wouldn't have worked, but I was like... No, no, no. Okay, now that way it really does work. It really is very much your snappy police Jerry Orbach comeback. Yes, exactly. Very law and order. So Overton is charged with two two counts of first-degree murder and a charge of sexual battery. He's also charged with the unlawful killing of an unborn child. And he is convicted. There was somebody who was um, a news uh, presenter was standing in front of the house and saying something, and uh, they the dead person was not available for. Oh comments. no no yeah yeah yeah. yeah. She said <laughs> she's at the scene of a car accident, and she says, "We have tried to reach out to the dead person, but he has not responded at this time." <laughs> no, we have tried to reach out to the person killed in this accident, but he has not responded at this time. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And I remember now it's from the Michelle McNamara thing. The, the news the newscaster says um, she's standing out in front of the house of one of the women who was raped. She was raped multiple times. And the woman is describing it. She's a 15 year old girl. She was dragged outside and she was raped repeatedly by this man. And then he involved her in sexually perverted activity. And I was like, so the three or four rapes don't count as sexually perverted activity? Like, that mm-hmm. didn't begin until after she had been raped multiple times? So apparently she thought, I assume blowjobs, or maybe it was anal sex, but whatever, was somehow way worse than being raped repeatedly. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm kind of down with this was pretty sexually perverted from beginning to end. It didn't mm-hmm. start suddenly after the rapes. Anyway, that's way off topic. And um, we're, we'll talk about... Um, I'll, get, I'll disappear into the dark. What is it called? I'll be gone in the dark. I'll be yeah. gone in the dark. Yeah. Um, on another episode. But uh, yeah, well, we've already talked about the I first episode uh, a few episodes ago, but we used it as an excuse to talk about crimes that have obsessed us as the Golden State Killer case obsessed Michelle McNamara. Right. Um, and so we started talking about it, but we'll talk more about the series later. I just that's what I was remembering. And I had thought it was I thought it was a part of this show, but it was a part of that show. That's why I didn't make a note about it. That's that explains everything, Eric. That Jack explains Quinn. why I did not make a note about that here. Well, so, yeah. I, you know, so he got off to jail. He goes, I mean, and he's on been on he's on death row now. And he's been through years of appeals, you know, which That's is what the right, family obviously. said. It was hardly, the conviction was hardly peace for them because they've had to go through all of these appeals. The brother was so fragile, so emotional that when he talked about his brother dying, he burst into tears. Even mm-hmm. now, even though this is 20 years later, nearly, um, I'm not saying you're required to get over it, but I was like, he's a very sensitive soul. And for him to be related to the sister who looked like she might turn over the dinner table if you said the wrong thing, like she's a judice or, or whatever. It was like I was like, mm-hmm. wow, what unusual, what unusual siblings this guy had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I the the family was not spared a trial. They had to go and sit in the courtroom and listen to all the gory details of the crime be repeated. Oh, yeah, they said there's, it was really a, hard on the parents. There's a lot here, like. There was something maybe to explore, and obviously they didn't have the time for it, perhaps, where how does a burglar escalate to murder? That is something that actually happened in the um, uh, the Golden State Killer case, which we were just talking about with Michelle McNamara. She investigated yes. it. But he, he went from rapes to serial killing. Here we have a burglar who escalates to a really vicious double homicide along with rape. 
There are weird things around, particularly the murder of Mike. Why were socks laid over his eyes? There were just there was a there was a whole nother layer to this crime, which I felt yeah. didn't get explored, and it was it was about Overton. It was about the type of killer that he was or the type of predator that he turned out to be, who they had, you know, clearly dramatically underestimated. I think that what may have happened is that we caught Overton at the point where he was beginning to escalate his own criminal, like he was going to become right. a serial killer because he was very ritualized and it was very specific. She was pregnant. The putting the socks on the guy's face as a way of almost, it's like a degrading and humiliating thing, but it's also very protective and gentle. It was a weird, it was a weird sort of detail um, right. to that, but it was a, it was a while after the murder, but it wasn't that long a while. So it may have been that he was working up to like, the next thing he began in exactly the same, the place that they busted him, he began exactly the same way as he as he had begun the break-in at the MacGyvers. He was outside cutting the phone lines. Did they say anything about potential victims inside that house, or was it just an empty house that they he was going to They did not talk about it. They had a rumor that he was going to break in, so... It may have been the next in his serial killer thing, but we never found out because they stopped him before he ever got inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so he may have been at the point of escalating into a more vicious killer and he never got to because they tied him up with this crime. He got busted for an earlier one. I mean, I guess one never really knows about knows that with some sort of like vicious killer like this. If they get busted because they do a bad job on their serious, on their vicious killing, you may have stopped them before they did it again right. and again and again. Like right. that may have happened more often, may happen more often than not, but like he may have become a more vicious killer than he turned out to be, but he didn't get the chance to because he was really not very good at it early on and got caught at it. And I'm glad he got caught. I'm sorry that Mike and Missy MacGyver had to die to be his and their test little case. Baby. It was, and their baby, their child, that was just hideous. Kyle. Um, the baby was going to be named Kyle. And yeah. the brother was really torn up about it. He said would have been a beautiful baby. And Kyle would have been five by the time they got through with all the convictions and the trials and the whatever, I think they said. I can't even mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. And, you know, today would be a grown man, 18, yeah. years old. But I was I was taken aback by the confidence that the with which the investigator said, well, clearly we didn't look at Overton in the beginning because he was just a burglar. You know, I, the, the, the kind of dividing line that they drew between different types of crime, as we were just talking about that, that was the thing about this episode that set me back the most. It's the sister having had a phone conversation with her the day of their murder, and maybe I'm misunderstanding the way in which it's presented. Maybe it was at a different time, but it seemed like it was immediately before he came over to the house and raped and murdered her. She had an encounter with a man at a gas station that's walking distance from her house, practically, um, who she had to really shut down hard because he was hitting on her. So, uh, with such determination, I, I just, it really surprises me that the sister didn't say that sooner mm-hmm. in the process, because that was the reason they started looking at him. They didn't before because he was just a burglar, but I, I just, I'm like, wow, that didn't occur to you to mention it? Like, 
even if they hadn't, even if it hadn't occurred to her as a motive, they said, when was the last time you talked to her? It'd be like, uh, we talked on the phone that day. In fact, mm-hmm. she told me about this guy at the gas station. Who, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't know how that took nearly a year to come out of the sister. I thought that was weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I thought that was weird, too. I really did. I thought that was weird. And, I, you know, we, we covered another story on True Crime TV Club recently. Uh, Murder in Paradise, I believe, was the name of the show. And we were, again, taken by a huge lag time between... I think it was when they looked into somebody's cell phone records, the victim's right. cell the, phone records. The, mel- the man has been missing now for nearly a year, and it's nearly a year before they managed, they think, huh, we should look where the last time we knew where his cell phone was. Right. And it's like, I'm sorry, on a missing corpse, because you can't, they couldn't find the body, the, right. it never occurred to you to check out the last location of his cell phone before... Now, like it's been nearly a year, year and a half since the murder. I just, yeah. Occasionally, hmm. I don't know, though. See, I always go to the place of the producers of this hour of television are futzing with the timeline a little bit to make it fit into the structure that they need to. But uh, those are big details to just make in, up that years or in months neither of by. the In neither case was it was it put out there in a way that it seemed like it was being done for producer purposes leaving out a witness or leaving out a piece of information that seems like for you know a producer might do to create more tension or to create more surprise later on but it was a timing thing like they had been through a whole series of things in the uh the murder in paradise episode to get to that place way in the future um that made it clear that it took them that long to do it. It took them that long because there was no mention right. of phone records any time before that. Um, although they did mention the phone records of the brother in that particular case, as I recall, they proved that he had gone to Germany and come straight back so that he mm-hmm. was present at the time of the murder. Um, and I think that was kind of what got them started on that path. But that was a while into the investigation. And this one... By her own admission, the sister says, I was racking my brain mm-hmm. for anything else I could come up with. And I remembered that on this conversation we had the day of the murder, she said this thing to me and I was like, really? And this was the first time you mentioned that? I just, I found that really, like, it's not unbelievable. And my God, if a member of your family has just been savagely murdered in her home while she's, you know, nearly about ready to give birth... Yeah, I could see you being rattled and screwing all things up. I'm not I'm not trying to be a critic of hers. The with the the French investigation, I am being a critic of the French police cuz I've watched a but couple I, of things recently. Don't you think this like, is a case of tunnel vision? You know, like because as as much as they were intriguing, the pages torn from the address book didn't actually play a role. Over 10 they is were total they were a total um, red herring. That's yeah. what I loved about that element. That's why I thought it was such an interesting choice. The other thing that they mentioned early on was that there were gas receipts, including gas receipts, yes. proving that she had been at the gas station that day um, yeah. on the dresser in the in the house um, where he'd open the drawer to get out belts and stuff to tie her up with. But um, so that was an that was a clue that they alluded to but didn't really focus on but yeah no the torn out uh, pieces of the of the uh 
of the address book were intriguing to me because they were such a complete distraction and had ultimately absolutely nothing to do with the murder or the murder suspect. They theorized, to circle back to what we were talking about at the top of the podcast, they theorized at the um, midway through that the whoever the killer was used the rainstorm as cover because they knew that it would have driven people off their porches, that they would have right. closed their windows. Did, did we ever get any indication? Because it was that a over- gated community. Right. Did we any get, ever get any indication that Overton consciously made that choice, or did he just spring that night because he had been escalated by her presence at the gas station. Well, it seems to have been, it seems to have been an opportunity. It was a, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a crime of opportunity. I think the storm was happening and he saw it as an opportunity to break in because he was a skilled burglar. So he saw it as good cover to get into a gated community unobserved and break into that house. Like, clearly he knew where they lived from having looked at the ID and stuff at the gas station. So mm-hmm. he knew where they were. He knew they were close um, and um, saw that the, the storm was his opportunity. I assume that's why they referenced it in the write-up of the show, because right. other than that, it really does not play a role in the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the crime report, other than him seeing it as an opportunity to get in um, undercover, if you right. will. So what did you think of this as a series? Is this something you're going to want us to return to? It was really all about the the having found video. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of like open-ended. It's like I might be willing to try another one. This was not, I was not crazy about the use of the found video in this. I didn't hate it, but there wasn't a lot and it was a little repetitive and... So it was like, eh, maybe. So I would have to, I, I, but it did intrigue me enough to think I might be interested to see this again because it was a way of having, um, you know, it, they used it instead of having tons of still photography. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it's much different than that, but the quality of those old videos is pretty um, cruddy and um, does not make for a great asset to the show. It, it lowers the production value of the show by its insertion. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I know what, what you, you mean. Think? Well, I, I, I was sort of like relieved by it um, on the one hand, because I thought it meant less reenactments and you know how I yes. feel about that, but it's not, not just, I think reenactments are annoying. I feel like they don't personalize the victim. You're giving me a fake version of the victim. You're giving, show me who they were. If you have the photos, use them. I don't actually mind the dateline thing where it's the same four photos over and over again, because I get a sense of who they actually were. And the reenactments don't do that, particularly when they when they do the split between this is a photo of who they were in real life. And now I'm going to show you a reenactor who looks absolutely nothing like them, which they do all the time. That's I find really jarring and distancing unnecessarily. The guy who I think the choice I think I think the choice to actually go to show their bodies even blurred out. That was Mm, that was right that was up at the line intense. for me. That was pretty yeah. intense. Like that warning, usually those warning labels just seem sort of gratuitous and, you know, it, they're supposed yeah. to be titillating for crime junkies. But that was really like, wow, that was, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That was intense. Yeah. Well, that was kinda, that's why I say I'm on the fence because I could see where the idea might be good, but it's, it was a lot. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, 
This has been another installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club and another What's episode. What's up next time, Christopher? Do we have we any idea? We don't know because we record these episodes for a stretch and we don't make a decision <laughs> on what the next one's going to be. But it's usually... But you've um, asked me every other episode if I have any idea what's happening next. So I thought it was only fair if I asked you when you have <laughs> no idea what's happening next. What's happening so next is I found a way to get Ben and Jerry's ice cream delivered to my house. So I'm going to eat an obligatory dinner, which is going to be probably some shrimp. It's just a prelude and an excuse to have some ice cream as soon as humanly possible to... Re- to reward us for having a good day of putting new podcast episodes and together. i'm having bacon wrapped chicken breast oh look at you so hot i win damn. hot dog and you know my final thought is i tried to we were talking about this the other day this is totally unrelated to everything i tried to to work up my best jimmy stewart impersonation i was thinking of it's a wonderful life for some reason and there's a there's a moment where he turns to someone and says oh why don't you stop annoying people and, and that's not the impersonation, but I tried to do it, and it came out as, oh, why don't you stop annoying people? Which I think we compared to one of the Muppets, right? Isn't that, you said I sounded I, like... I made the comparison between um, that it was the child, the love child of Oscar the Grouch and Cookie Monster. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I'm going to be working on that between now and our next recording, and if I've got my Jimmy Stewart impersonation figured out, I'll whip it out for you, but... but, but uh, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't I'm hope. Not, I, I wouldn't. I'm not going to be sitting by the phone. But I'm not. I wouldn't hope for it. Yeah, I, I've got like two impersonations I do well, and that's not one of them. I um, can't do impersonations, so I you no judgment here. Yes. So Points next episode will be all impersonations. Really, is what we're all bad impersonations. We're um, going to be doing the Mr. Ed impersonation episode. Well, this is actually probably a good opportunity to refresh uh, to tell people that we did on a recent episode talk about an unsolved murder that we're going we're trying to bring attention to, which is the murder of William Newton. We're approaching the 30th anniversary of the case. We have multiple social media postings that are happening or have happened about it. Uh, we're trying to bring attention to it because it's gone unsolved now for three decades. William Newton was a gay man here in Los Angeles who also worked as a gay porn performer under the name Billy London. And his murder has gone unsolved for far too long. So that if you want more information about that, you can check out um, our previous episode. I believe it's episode. Let me get the number up here. Episode 37. It's when we talk about that crime for the first time. And of course, the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page. So until next time, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.